good afternoon and good morning depending upon where you are uh, i welcome all distinguished guests excellencies ladies and gentlemen and my dear colleagues on behalf of uh, national middle east institute national university of singapore uh, which has organized this uh, webinar on a very uh, interesting theme uh, whose title is iran's presidential election impact on the islamic republic's policies and uh, uh, to discuss that, we have four very uh, renowned speakers from their respective fields uh, who have joined us in this uh, webinar. And uh, I will just introduce them uh, for, for you. Uh, we have the first speaker who is, uh, who is Dr. Sanam Vakil, who is a Deputy Director and Senior Research Fellow of the Middle East and North Africa Program at the Royal Institute of International Affairs, Chatham House. Dr. Vakil is also the James Anderson Professor professorial lecture, lecturer in the Middle East Studies Department at the John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies in Pologna, Italy. In the past, she has also served as an assistant professor of Middle East Studies at SAIS Washington and served as a research associate at the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, we have the second speaker uh, who is Professor Manusher Dorraj who is a professor of international affairs at Adran College of Liberal Arts, Texas, Christian University, Fort Worth, Texas. He has previously taught at the University of Texas at Austin and Shanghai International Studies University. He was earlier a visiting fellow at Georgetown Center for International and Regional Studies in Doha, Qatar, and also a visiting scholar at Fudan University Development Institute in Shanghai, China. We have the third speaker joining us, Dr. Mahmoud Pargu. He is a research fellow at the Middle East Studies Forum at Alfred Dakin Institute, Dakin University, Australia. He's the author of Secularization of Islam in Post-Revolutionary Iran and co-author of Presidential Elections in Iran, Islamic Idealism Since the Revolution. Dr. Pargu has published in a variety of media outlets, including Al Monitor, BBC, ABC, The Atlantic, Asia Times, and The Diplomat. Now, finally, we have the fourth speaker, uh, whose name is Dr. Raz Zin who is an expert on Iran, who is currently affiliated as a research fellow with the Institute for National yes, Studies, National Security yes. Studies, Tel Aviv University. He holds a master's degree and a PhD in Middle Eastern history from Tel Aviv University. Dr. Zimt is also a visiting research fellow at the Alliance Center for Iranian Studies at Tel Aviv University. In addition, he is the editor of a spotlight on Iran published by the Mir Amit in the Intelligence and Terrorism Information Center. So, we have a real stellar uh, panel for today's discussion. And as the title suggests, we shall be actually looking at the difference in Iranians' domestic and foreign policies after the election of the current uh, uh, president-elect, Ibrahim Raisi. Uh, because a lot of interest has been generated because uh, this, uh, uh, this person is not only being seen as the next president, assuming charge in office, but also as a very likely successor of the Supreme leadership position. So that is why uh, the whole world is uh, weaving. And this election has come also at a time when only a few months ago, a new president has been elected in the United States, whose policy to a great extent impacts uh, 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 Iranian uh, domestic policy as well as foreign policy. And uh, very interestingly in Israel also, well, with which a very conflicting nature of relationship Iran shares uh, has also elected its new leader. So uh, this is a very inter interesting dynamic where we are going to discuss 
the presidential election and the outcome of it. Uh, and uh, uh, before beginning, I'll just inform the usual uh, uh, usual uh, technique of asking questions in Zoom by whether typing it on the Zoom uh, chat function, or you may also uh, uh, unmute, uh, raise your hand, and we shall unmute you, and you can ask your question. And uh, I also, uh, in the beginning, uh, uh, would like to thank uh, two of my colleagues, Dr. Alexandro Arduino and uh, Dr. James M. Dorsey, who have been helping me in organizing this conference uh, behind the scene. And uh, our speakers will be speaking for about 10 to 12 minutes, after which we will have question and answer session. So we begin uh, with our first speaker, uh, Dr. Sanam Vakil, who shall be letting us know about the, the ground level democracy or the facade of democracy or real or partial, virtual, whatever. She would actually be telling us the exact nature of the political socialization in Iran, uh, because uh, everybody is interested to know not only about the outcome or the impact of it, but what actually is the actual activities among people related to the political uh, you know, system. So uh, Dr. Sanam Vakil, over to you. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Shoja. It's uh, such a pleasure to be here with you today. Thank you to you and your colleagues for the uh, kind inf invitation. Um, I'm, I'm looking above all forward to uh, hearing what uh, the rest of my esteemed panelists uh, have to say. So I'll try to keep my comments brief and I'm looking forward to the discussion and the questions um, as well. Um, you asked me to provide sort of an on the ground uh, look uh, at uh, um, what has been happening in Iran. Um, and I think that the context is very important. Um, Iran has been um, uh, beset by a number of internal as well as external challenges. And this of course has very much impacted the political climate inside the country. Um, I think it's important uh, to remember that in 2015, Iran, um, the, the Iranian government signed uh, the Iran nuclear agreement known as the JCPOA. Um, and this uh, agreement was signed uh, just shortly after uh, the election of uh, the current or the outgoing Iranian president, uh, Hassan Rouhani. Um, and voter participation um, in Rouhani's uh, first election was uh, quite high. Um, really, his uh, political principal political policy uh, that he was advocating was um, uh, Iran's participation in, in a nuclear agreement that would give Iran sanctions relief and would offer um, the country and, and individuals a better economic opportunity. Uh, there was a lot of um, I would say a groundswell of support uh, for this arrangement um, at the popular level and this has been clear in uh, polling um, uh, that was uh, taken around uh, the JCPOA and, and also um, in engaging with um, Iranians at, at different levels and across um, many sectors and provinces. Uh, there, I can personally say that there was a, a degree of enthusiasm that was um, quite unprecedented. Um, uh, this um, this climate, though, has very much shifted um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, President Rouhani has been in power for eight years. Um, through this period, the country has experienced uh, significant challenges, um, not just uh, with the implementation of the JCPOA that for many Iranians didn't deliver in the way that um, they expected it to, uh, uh, but also because um, 
The Trump administration, you will remember, was very critical of the Iran nuclear agreement. And despite Iranian compliance with that agreement that was verified on multiple occasions by the International Atomic Energy Agency, um, President Trump withdrew from the JCPOA and over a two and a half year period began to impose um, graduated but very um, restrictive sanctions on the Iranian economy and on the Iranian political establishment. Um, these sanctions prevented Iran from exporting oil, um, but also uh, from engaging in a broader commercial activities as effectively all of its sectors were sanctioned. Um, it also prevented the Iranian government from accessing uh, the international banking system, uh, which prevented it from also accessing its foreign reserves that have built up to very high levels in bank accounts all around the world. Um, the consequence of this is that um, obviously ordinary Iranians bore the principal pain of sanctions um, through this period. Inflation has uh, skyrocketed. Um, hitting informally around 40%. Unemployment has increased. Uh, the currency uh, was uh, devalued on a number, um, number of occasions, um, all as uh, the government tried to uh, e economically survive through this period. Um, and, and they did survive. The country didn't collapse. Um, the economy did not collapse, although um, there were uh, two, uh, uh, if not more, I mean, two huge protests uh, that spread throughout the country, principally driven by economic grievances. Uh, these protests um, were seen in December and January of 2017, 2018, and November 2019 over rising gas prices. Um, those protests, of course, um, were, were quite shocking by um, how quickly they spread around uh, to small Iranian cities as well. But they were also uh, quite uh, brutally repressed. Um, and, and the government through this period has stepped up coercive measures um, to uh, monitor the population to prevent the outbreak of further protests. So this has also very much impacted the climate in Iran. Uh, so already these are three challenges, uh, uh, disappointment, economic challenges, uh, the impact of sanctions, growing repression. Um, and then you can sort of add to that the fact that uh, the Islamic government through this period decided to push back against the US push, um, maximum pressure campaign um, and, and uh, began to transfer uh, pressure into the region. Uh, in the summer of 2019, we saw an outbreak of tensions in the Persian Gulf, the downing of a US drone, attacks on Saudi oil facilities. Um, this, of course, adds uh, to uh, you know, a certain psychological and stress within the country. Um, on January 3rd, 2020, um, Iran's foremost um, IRGC commander, Qasem Soleimani, was killed in Iraq by um, uh, a U.S. strike. And um, a few days after that attack, um, the Iranian government mistakenly downed um, a Ukrainian airliner, killing all of the passengers on board. Um, so, you know, that's a lot for a two and a half year period, um, and I think for a population to bear. Um, <clears throat> and then came COVID. Iran has had the highest death rate of COVID from COVID um, throughout the Middle East. Um, and again, um, under the pressure of sanctions, it's had um, a lackluster or let's say limited ability to respond. It is potentially experiencing a fifth wave right now um, amid an environmental crisis. Um, there are currently also worker protests um, spreading throughout the country. 
So um, I'm presenting to you this huge sort of uh, picture of what uh, ordinary Iranians have been through really to sort of to highlight that this election was hugely important um, for a number of reasons. Um, this election saw the lowest um, public participation um, in a presidential election in 42 years. Uh, normally election results are definitely over the 50% mark and in certain cases have been as high as 80% in terms of uh, popular participation. And this election generated li very little enthusiasm with 48% participating. And um, because of the heavy vetting um, that took place of the candidates by this institution known as the Guardian Council, um, the candidates that were presented for the people to vote for were not terribly inspiring. And interestingly, also as an outcome, um, so President Raisi, who will be sworn in shortly, obviously received the most votes, but the second highest votes were blank or spoiled ballots. And this is a, a growing and sort of relatively novel phenomenon. So protest votes also increased in this period. And I think this points to a few issues. <clears throat> obviously, there is a growing disenchantment between state and society that is very clear. Um, add to that is a growing um, frustration with uh, reformists and, and centrist or moderate politicians that haven't been able to deliver campaign promises or haven't been able to deliver very much in terms of reform social liberalization, economic um, improvements and the like. Um, so if you add these sort of layers together, it very much explains why people have checked out. Um, and there is a past pattern in Iranian elections that when the uh, population doesn't engage, it sort of opens the door and allows for conservatives um, to win at the ballot box. And this very much um, took place. Um, a final note, and this is, um, uh, you know, Iranian elections are generally unpredictable. Uh, those of us who follow Iran have learned uh, many a lesson um, over, over past elections at being predictive. Um, what was unpredictable or, or here was this was the first predictable election uh, that we have experienced in, uh, I think, uh, 20 years um, in the case of Iran. And um, in advance of elections, uh, really uh, public discussion becomes much more engaging um, in, in, the, in, the, in the society so that the state tries to generate more public participation, more interest. Um, they try to um, inspire people through the debates and the debates this year were also particularly uninspiring. And I'm sure my colleagues will talk about uh, the policy issues more in depth, but quite interestingly, um, politicians and um, politically engaged individuals really use the uh, social media application Clubhouse um, in a very unique way in advance of the elections, um, taking to Clubhouse um, to hold a very large policy discussions and to discuss a broad array of issues uh, um, that uh, they were, let's say, putting forward. And so a number of the prominent candidates or even some of the disqualified candidates like former President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad held clubhouse discussions with thousands of Iranians listening in. Um, and for those of us on the outside, unable to go back um, and, and you know, unable to, let's say, have such close access, this was a really fascinating phenomenon. It was, I think, um, really interesting uh, to be part of those discussions, to listen into the questions and to watch um, how uh, um, 
the political establishment made use of Clubhouse um, as a, a campaign tool, um, and, and perhaps this campaign tool generated more interest and momentum um, and engagement uh, than uh, the entire campaign did um, itself. Um, just finally, what does this all say in terms of where we are going? I mean, we know President Raisi has won. Um, uh, uh, he has a huge number of challenges ahead of him. Um, and I think primary above them are economic. Uh, so knowing that the population is quite disenchanted, um, I think that as a president, uh, the best um, strategy for him is to uh, take a, a very strong uh, economic platform and, and carry that forward in an effort to improve governance issues um, that um, have, have clearly exacerbated a, a divide between um, the political establishment and ordinary Iranians. So I'll stop there. Thank you very much and, and looking forward to the rest of uh, uh, my pe fellow panelists comments. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Uh, Sanam. Uh, fascinating, and especially the political socialization that you have mentioned. Uh, voting uh, to protest that we will not vote, you know. Uh, so the protest vote going highest in numbers, actually they are voting, but saying also we will not vote. I mean, that's a duality in every realm of Iranian society, not only in power. And also Clubhouse, the, the, the phenomena that all of us are keenly watching in the age of technology. So how much uh, that actually uh, sees the light of the day. Uh, with that, uh, we now move on to our second uh, panelist, uh, uh, Professor uh, Duraj from Texas. And uh, he's actually better positioned to tell us about uh, the US policy, especially under President Biden. What exactly is it? Uh, it's very uh, enigmatic these days. What exactly President Biden wants uh, with Iran? So please highlight us, and especially under the background of this election of Ibrahim uh, uh, Raisi. Uh, Professor Dorat, your floor. Thank you very much for the kind invitation, uh, and especially Dr. Shoja and his colleagues who organized this webinar and allowed me to have an audience with you all, but also exchange ideas with our esteemed colleagues who are members of the panel. And uh, I think it's instructive to look at some of the constraint, what I would call structural constraint that Biden administration works under. If I have time at the end, I would also talk about a structural constraint on the Iranian side and why I see if we do reach a GCPOA agreement in Vienna uh, in let's say a few months down the line, I see that as a ceiling, not a foundation for transformative changes in US-Iran relation. Let me state that. Uh, first of all, there are no significant constituencies in the United States who favor dramatic improvement of relation with Iran, rapprochement, grand bargain, anything of the sort, quite to the contrary. We know that Republicans en masse were opposed to JCPOA to begin with. They supported Trump's maximum pressure campaign. And we also know that since Biden has come to the office, some more supposedly moderate Democrats, Senator Menendez, for example, joined a, uh, wrote a joint letter with Senator Graham, a Republican, Menendez, a Democrat, urging him to hold on to Trump-era sanctions and use them as leverage to grant more concession from Iran. And we also know that Hillary Clinton wing of the Democratic Party has always been very hawkish on Iran policy. So what remains that really 
is in favor of a new look at Iran is the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, which is very small and not very influential. So that's US Congress. And when we get to the larger Washington think tanks and establishment, really the neoconservatives in some ways have gone mainstream on Iran policy. And uh, there's, if you will, an institutional enmity at this point on both sides, which has been cemented by years of, of if you will, not only mistrust, but also uh, lack of harmony between leadership in Tehran and leadership in Washington. When, for example, President Khatami, who spoke of great American civilization and who spoke of necessity for, necessity for dialogue of civilization, including dialogue with the United States, and was in favor of improvement of relation, we get George W. Bush. Of course, during the first term, we have um, Hillary Clinton, I'm sorry, Bill Clinton, who's in the office, and hardliners on the Iranian side did not want to see Khatami, who represents the reform side of Iranian spectrum to get the uh, benefit of normalizing relation or improving relation with us. So that, because of the uh, uh, intransigence of the hardliners did not come to pass. And when US had uh, President George W. Bush in the office, of course, he wanted none of this uh, rapprochement with Iran and Basically, Iran was told after US invasion of Iraq that you're next. So the second issue that is very important to note is that there is no foreign policy crisis in the United States. When you think of cost benefit analysis of Biden administration that would obviate the Biden administration to reach out to Iran beyond nuclear uh, agreement or beyond JCPOA. To just give you a historical example that drives this point home, when US reached out to China, US had major problem in Vietnam and wanted to get out of Vietnam, peace with honor, as Nixon would call it. And the realization was reached under Henry Kissinger that the source of problem in Vietnam is with China and Soviet Union. We need to strike a deal with them. And that compels Nixon, uh, Republican to go to China and so-called open the door to China, normalization of relation with China and recognition of China in 1976 ensues after normalization, after Nixon's trip in 1972. So there is no compelling foreign policy crisis that a better relation with Iran is going to solve for the United States. That's another constraint and doesn't matter in this regard who is in the office. And then the, the third one, I think um, Israel also, I'm sure Professor Zimt is going to talk in more detail about this. And I'm very interested to hear his analysis, but Israel also plays a very significant role in US calculus regarding Iran. The two sides since Biden administration came to office had national security team collaborating, cooperating, brainstorming, and Israel is also very entrenched and does not want to see any new concession made to Iranian government. So these are some of the grand, if you will, uh, 
constraints that Biden administration works on. But on the other hand, if we look at the Iranian side, it reinforces the Biden administration's hand. Uh, Biden administration came to the office talking about a better and a bigger deal with Iran. Uh, and they wanted to use the leverage of sanctions from Trump era, maximum pressure, to bring Iran to negotiation table, not just on JCPOA. They wanted to use that as a foundation to negotiate Iran nuclear, Iran uh, missile system, Iran uh, behavior, political behavior regionally, uh, its support of militias, etc. And on the Iranian side, their idea of forward defense um, and the idea that we don't have an air force missile is all the deterrent that we got has made them to come and say, and President-elect Regisi has said it very openly, missile system is not up for negotiation, neither is our policies regionally. And that therefore makes me to conclude that if we reach any agreement on JCPOA, that would be the ceiling. That's the best we can expect at this point. And I don't see any follow-on negotiation. In addition, I think what happened under Trump administration that Biden administration was dealt a hand that it had to work with was that maximum pressure was designed not only ultimately for regime change, create economic implosion through mass protests and all that, that would lead to political implosion inside Iran, but also the whole policy of assassination of General Soleimani was to make sure that if there are any future government in US who wants to mend bridges with Iran, that would be very difficult to do. And indeed it is. As we know, current negotiation is in an indirect negotiation, negotiation precisely because of that. So uh, that's another factor, which is I think structural. And, and in so far as that does not change this is structural issues. And, and on the Iranian side, Iran also, after this 25 year contract or agreement with China, feels that they have an alternative. There, there's a consensus between both the reform wing and the hardliners on the necessity of survival of the regime and how it is linked to its Eastern strategy that is expansion of ties with China and with Russia. And they also see their integration because the US sanctions uh, basically has boycotted Iran from global economy. It's banking system, it's oil and gas, everything. And Biden hasn't removed any sanctions substantially so far. So, so far as they're concerned, their integration back into the global economy is gonna go through China's Belt and Road. And therefore, that has given them some autonomy not to give concession on other issues. And this is where we are right now. And I wanna leave it at that and be happy to come back and talk about some more detail when we talk about uh, other issues that our audience may have questions about. Thank you so much, uh, Professor. I think you have quite a bit uh, demystified the, the ambivalence that we see, you know, in President Biden's approach towards Iran. Uh, what exactly are those compulsions? We are nearer the understanding. And now we uh, move on to our third speaker, uh, that is uh, Dr. Mahmoud Pargu. He has just written his book on Iranian presidential election has been released. Oh, he'll be showing us that book. Okay, great. Very timely book. 
it's last month uh, released two months ago it, it has been released and uh, uh, because now we have discussed the grassroots level of political socialization and the top level of the modeling of that which is a lot of it is guided by the u.s policy now we shall be uh, looking uh, deep into the structural framework of the position of president or the office of presidency in the Iranian political system. Because uh, in the current realm, we see that uh, whenever we talk about president, we also talk, uh, intermingle it with the office of supreme leader. So how exactly uh, is the personality of Ibrahim Raisi driving that uh, political position of presidency? So the structural as well as the personal dimension. Uh, Dr. Pargu, please, the, the, the floor is yours. Yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Asif. Thank you for all um, our audience and our esteemed uh, panelists. Um, this book actually is written by me and Professor Shaham Akbarzadeh from Deakin University. So it's a co-authored book just to mention his contribution. And I guess now he is available here in, among the audience. I hope uh, he will come and uh, give comments after our talk. Um, Let's go and focus first on elections in Iran. Elections in Iran are, are a bit of very odd and mixed uh, mixture of um, really uh, authoritarian system or structure mixed with a popular sovereignty issue. The, the authoritarian religious part is mainly manifested in uh, the supreme leader and other different um, bodies and organizations, institutes of power behind, below his, uh, under his control, like uh, one is the uh, armed forces, uh, the state, um, the state broadcasting company, the, uh, the powerful guardian council, which is the institutional body vetting the, um, the candidates for, uh, for the president and other uh, candidates of uh, majlis or parliament and many other power stations and so we, so you have four main democratic uh, say democratic not democratic elected but four main um, electoral bodies one is president which is elected by uh, the by the uh, direct vote one is uh, majlis or parliament the other one is um, the Majlis Khobregan or expert councils or uh, parliament, which is um, which is sanctioned to to select the leader, and the other one city councils. But all of these are limited. Basically, not everybody is welcome to um, to be elected. So the guardian council has to to insert the uh, to qualify or to uh, approve the qualifications of candidates. And as we have seen in the last few years, this has been increasingly, you know, the disqualification rate has been very increasingly, uh, has been increasing in the last few decades, last few years. And before that, even in the last say uh, decade has been increasing. So you have this uh, very serious uh, say uh, hurdle in front of the democracy. Then after, um, you have after in the parliament, you have laws, the laws needs to be again approved by the guardian council against the Sharia and the constitution. So all of these restrictions are there. Then uh, how powerful is president? First of all, the, the president, which can come from 
really uh, serious opposition is is difficult or impossible because they will be disapproved by the Guardian Council. So normally, and uh, what is the range of this difference, you know, or say uh, how tolerant has been the Guardian Council or the regime to, to different parties or candidates. So this has been, again, increasingly tightening and it's being restrictive. So uh, there, there was a time in 1997 that Muhammad Khatami was allowed to run. But after that, this, uh, say, restrictions has been increasing. So in uh, 2017, uh, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad was uh, banned from running. In 2013, uh, uh, Hashemir Afsanjani was banned from uh, running. And of course, in this you know, uh, election in this year, almost all not even opposition, but moderate or moderate candidates were banned. So, so it, it has been restricting, you know. The, so basically, uh, as I put it, the regime is uh, kind of losing its uh, risk appetite. So it's not it's not willing anymore to accept, you know, some uh, serious candidates that that could make some, uh, you know, momentum into political structure. This is in terms of how legally the president, you know, the, the legal powers of the president. Well, in terms of reality, the reality is that the president uh, has uh, lots of, you know, different uh, different instruments and institutions under his under his, you know, control. Uh, some of them, they are more. I, I mean, in domestic politics. He, he has more open-handed, you know, open hand to, to influence some policies, but not fundamental policies of the state. In foreign policy, and main fundamental policies are dictated by the, by the uh, Supreme Leader through National Security Council. And that National Security Council, uh, around six to seven members are appointed by the, uh, the president and other six, seven, uh, seven uh, members are appointed by the Supreme Leader. So always there is some, some place for negotiation. But, but this room for negotiation, again, is, is very narrow. So there are not that much of, um, say, uh, that much of changes that president can make without uh, the approval, approval of the Supreme Leader. So when it comes to um, pre, uh, pre new president-elect Raisi, again, all of these happens, did uh, apply. So Raisi, uh, like Rouhani, wasn't able to do this. Raisi will not be able to change the policies, the, the main fundamental policies of foreign policy or domestic policy that much. And uh, this, this, of course, is important because against the expectations that Raisi is a very hardliner president, he's going, is coming to, um, you know, dismantle everything. He, you know, probably the pragmatic approach of the regime will change uh, somehow pragmatic and all of those things, I, I don't think so. So I, I don't expect that much of um, policy changes in foreign policy, whether in domestic policy to happen, uh, partly because of, the, as, um, you know, as I said about this, the legal structure, the legal, you know, limits um, he has and the limited maneuvering space he has, uh, but also because his personality. And again, 
uh, unlike what we hear in uh, many of you know uh, media reports he is not that much of a hawkish uh, president as people uh, i see they portray him so he's he's actually um, among uh, hard conservatives he has a kind of reputation of being a pragmatist and uh, at least as far as compared to other uh, hardliners like Jalili, who, uh, who actually they had some confrontation in one of the uh, television debates. So, so I, I don't think that much of changes, but the, again, they are different from conservatives and moderates. They have different, um, people have different expectations. They have to somehow, uh, you know, have an eye on their support. Um, they are supportive, you know, support bases and uh, somehow satisfy their expectations. Uh, so it will not be like before, but it hasn't been, it will not be a revolutionary path like being uh, too much hawkish or um, or say to, to escalate the foreign policy decisions and, uh, even in domestic policy, we will have the same thing. So I don't expect too much of changes actually in both parts. So I will be uh, happy to uh, to answer the questions if uh, there were any. Thank you. Okay, uh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Mahmoud. Uh, so you have actually highlighted the regime has lost its risk appetite. So what has uh, replaced it, uh, it would be interesting to see. And with that, uh, we move on uh, to our fourth and uh, perhaps equally important uh, speaker, uh, because Israel, uh, or the discourse of Israel within the Iranian uh, you know, strategic discourse is like that of iceberg. Just uh, one part of it is visible, the two part is not visible, but it determines a large extent, to a large extent, whether the authorities accept it or not the influence of Israel or the whole existence of Israel in Iranian uh, foreign policy. So any security arrangement that we talk in terms of uh, the, the region, which are we Iran, uh, Israel's role is extremely important. So to highlight uh, some, uh, uh, to, to put, uh, uh, throw some light on these aspects, we have a very uh, renowned uh, scholar, uh, Dr. Raj, from a very renowned institution. Uh, Dr. Raj, the floor is yours. So good morning. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Fuja and my fellow uh, panelists. Uh, yes, well, it took uh, the Iranians eight years to replace uh, President Rouhani, and it took the Israelis uh, 12 years to replace Prime Minister Netanyahu. So I will certainly address to this as well. Uh, but let me say a few words about uh, my thoughts concerning the, the regional policy uh, of Iran uh, under Raisi, and I certainly agree with the Dr. Pargu, uh, with what he said. Uh, look, I don't want to underestimate uh, the importance of the Iranian president. Uh, as we know, he chairs the Supreme National Security Council. Uh, and uh, President Rouhani, at least in his first term as president, did try in a way to balance a little bit, perhaps, the, the significance or the importance of the of what uh, Dr. Vakil uh, has written an excellent piece on the deep, deep state in, in Iran, mainly the revolutionary guards. But uh, we should not uh, also overestimate the importance of the president. Uh, and, and you probably all remember uh, the leaked tape of uh, Foreign Minister Zarif a few months ago, 
where he spoke uh, about this uh, tension between the diplomacy and the Maidan, between the diplomacy and the, and the battlefield. Uh, and, and as we know, the, political, the Iranian political system has always been character, characterized with this tension between uh, the so-called revolutionary institutions uh, and the so-called republican institution uh, uh, elected by, by the people. Uh, and so I, I would say that I, I too do not anticipate major changes in, uh, uh, in, in, the, in the Iranian policy, especially in its uh, foreign and regional policy under, under Raisi. As, as Foreign Minister Zarif himself said, that when it comes to the regional policy of Iran, the main uh, responsibilities lay, lay with, with the Revolutionary Guards. Uh, and we probably all remember uh, two or three years ago when Foreign Minister Zarif actually wanted to resign uh, after the Syrian president Assad visited uh, uh, Iran, and uh, um, he, he he was not even Zarif was not even aware of this uh, visit until he 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 listened after in the news. Uh, I would say, however, that if we if we should expect some changes in Iran's uh, regional policy. I would say that it's it's not because of the new uh, the new government or the new president in Iran, but it's it's more because of the uh, growing challenges Iran has been facing in the region over the last few years. Uh, and I don't have the time to elaborate on all those challenges, but but let me let me just uh, mention a few of them. Uh, what we've seen over the last decade in in uh, in the Middle East. Uh, seems to be, and my, some of my Israeli colleagues uh, would describe that as, as an Iranian uh, a success story. Uh, why a success story? Because when you look at the level of Iranian interference and influence in the region, in Syria, in Iraq, and in Yemen, uh, there is certainly uh, a much more increased uh, interference and influence by Iran in those states. Having said that, my personal view has always been that uh, when you look at the Iranian influence in the, in the, um, the so-called Arab Middle East in the recent decades, it has more to do with the weakness of the Arab world rather than to the strength of, the, of, of Iran. And what we've seen over the last two or three years is that Iran has been facing more and more challenges in the regions, just to, to, to mention a few of them. Uh, first, the stabilization in, in Iraq and in Syria, which has made it much more difficult to Iran to legitimize it, uh, to give explanations to the level of uh, interference in, in, in those countries. Uh, the second thing, which of course has a, uh, is connected to the first issue, is what we've seen as a growing uh, public criticism against uh, Iranian influence in the region. We've seen the protests going on in Beirut. We've seen the protests going on in Iraq, not just among the, the Sunnis in the region, but also among Shiites. And we all remember the, the events of uh, uh, protesters in Basra or in Karbala torching Iranian consulates there, uh, not because they do not want good relationship between Iraq and Iran, but because they really, but they uh, they want to to the Iraq, they want Iran to uh, move away from this interference in the domestic politics of of the of of the states in the region. Another uh, problem Iran is facing is that it has learned that it is not the only player in the region. And whenever you look around, whether it's Syria or Iraq or Yemen, uh, Iran is just one player. Uh, so again, I don't have the time 
to, to elaborate on that. But uh, if you take uh, Syria, for example, the Israeli military uh, activities certainly limited the extent of Iran's entrenchments in Syria. Uh, we've, we've had several reports about uh, competition between Iran and Russia over the issue of economic uh, participation in the reconstruction of Syria. Turkey is another important uh, player, both in Syria and Iraq, and of course the United States, which is still an, uh, a, a major uh, player. The assassination of Soleimani was also very important. And uh, I do not think that the assassination or the death of Soleimani changed Iran's strategy in the region, but there is no doubt that Soleimani was uh, a very successful combination, I would say, between uh, a military general and a very good politician. And he really managed to create this network of connections between Iran and its pro uh, and, and its uh, allies, its partners, its proxies in the region. And with all due respect to his successor, Ismail uh, Ani, uh, I doubt it if he has the, the ability to uh, to continue the efforts and the success of uh, of Soleimani. And the two other, uh, the two last uh, issues, uh, the two last constraints I would like to to uh, to raise. One is of course the Abraham Accords between Israel and the Gulf states. Now, I don't think that we should uh, anticipate any kind of a coalition between Israel and its new partners in the, in, in the Gulf, the UAE or even the Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia uh, against Iran. Uh, I, I doubt it. I think it's very unlikely. But it certainly adds another uh, element, another dimension to this uh, uh, kind of uh, sense in Iran that it is more vulnerable than it used to be. Uh, last but not least, I would, uh, I would uh, at least mention uh, the recent events in Afghanistan, uh, which are very important in my, in my view, and I think we should all follow what's going on in Afghanistan. Uh, as someone who has been following the, the Iranian media uh, um, on, uh, regularly, there are a lot of commenter uh, commentaries published by Iranian press about this, uh, uh, about the, 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 the uh, implications of the U.S. Uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan and, uh, and the uh, possibility that the Taliban might uh, take control, regain control over Afghanistan. Uh, we all remember that uh, the new commander, is not so new, the commander of the host force, Rani, uh, has a very good background of dealing with Afghanistan, so I cannot rule out the possibility that Iran might, uh, might want to uh, shift some of its efforts from other places to Afghanistan if, if, if that's uh, uh, required. My, my last remark concerns the new government in Israel. And uh, again, I, I think we should not overestimate the importance of the new government in Israel, because when it comes to Iran, there is no real difference between uh, Israeli politicians from various factions uh, within Israeli politics uh, uh, towards Iran. Certainly not when it comes to the, to the uh, concern of Iran's nuclear uh, program. And the Israeli uh, uh, official position has remained the same. Uh, the, the United States should not go back to the JCP, JCPOA. Again, just, just let me, uh, let me uh, say I, I do not represent the official uh, 
position of the state of Israel. I have my own positions, but the, the position of the state of the government of Israel, both the Netanyahu's government and the Bennett government is the same. The United States should continue the maximum pressure policy against Iran and should not go back to the JCPOA. The only uh, change I, 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 it seems to, to happen is perhaps a slightly more pragmatic uh, Israeli approach towards the United States when it comes to uh, its decision to go back to the JCPOA. So while Netanyahu said we should not discuss anything with the United States other than our objection, objection to the US return to the JCPOA, it seems to me that the tone has, uh, has changed a little bit. And uh, the Israeli current new government uh, has perhaps decided uh, to, to maintain its differences with the United States away from the public uh, eyes and ears, which, which in my view is, is, is very good. And when it comes to the regional issue, again, there is no real difference between uh, Israel, between the Israeli government's uh, efforts to, uh, to limit or to delay Iran's entrenchment mainly in Syria and to, to limit the extent of uh, deliveries of weapons to Hezbollah is a major uh, issue in Israel and this will, will not stop. Just may I say a, a, a final issue, a, a final uh, sentence, which is I believe that what's going to happen in Vienna will have major implications on the Israeli position. Because if there is a, a return to the JCPOA in, in Vienna and Iran is forced to roll back again its uh, nuclear capabilities and uh, return to the place where it was after the JCPOA was signed, which is approximately one year away from breakout capability, this, I think, might not change uh, dramatically the Israeli uh, position, but it might uh, create uh, a sense of less, less sense of urgency in Israel to continue its efforts uh, against Iran's uh, nuclear uh, uh, program. I'll stop uh, here and uh, elaborate perhaps later. Uh, fascinating. Uh, Dr. Raz, it was really insightful. And the way especially you have said that there's absolutely no difference or the similarity of views between various factions in Israeli politics. In fact, it's in interesting to note even the similarity of dreams Iran and Israel have been chasing. For Israel has been recognized as a regional power. It has been chasing a dream of being recognized as a state. Iran has been recognized as a state. It has been chasing the dream of being recognized as a regional power. The, 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 the dreams of both are intellectual in nature, which cannot be solved by the military, <laughs> perhaps. But we have uh, many questions are coming up and uh, we can start uh, with the first question that has been uh, directed to uh, Professor Dorat. It is uh, coming from uh, Mahmoud uh, Bonshipuri. And I'll just read it. What is the possibility of reaching an agreement with the current government in Tehran uh, within the context of the JCPOA negotiations before the conservative government of Raisi takes over power in August 2021? Uh, Professor Dorad, the question, uh, if you could yes. answer that. Well, uh, regarding the JCPOA, I'm, uh, I'm a, a bit more optimistic than any follow-on negotiation because both sides have something in stake. For Biden administration, the real focus of the Biden administration is competition on the global stage with China and Russia. Great power uh, politics is 
what is on top of the agenda. Iran in that regard is a nuisance, right? And that's why Biden administration has given its blessing to the negotiation that has been going on between Iran and Saudi Arabia, wants to see some of the escalation that would following US withdrawal from Afghanistan will continue uh, in the sense that not that the US troops are gonna be withdrawn, but decreasing its footprint so it can focus more on the Pacific uh, theater, if you will. So that's, that's one. And, and for Iran, they are in desperate financial straits. Uh, they need that. And even if they want to have a very successful relation with China, they need, J that is economic ties with China, they need J2PA so they can do the banking, they can sell their oil, all of that. So for Iran is also very crucial uh, that, that they get to JCPOA. And on that, I think um, both sides have an understanding that uh, for US, they wanna put Iran nuclear uh, profile genie back in the bottle, so to speak, or defang Iran from that possibility of having a nuclear weapon. Uh, and, and for Iran, they need the financial relief. Uh, so that makes me think that, that there's a will here there would be a way uh, and we would, we would have a, an agreement at the end of the day, if on minor issues or minute issues of what sort of sanctions should be on the table for negotiation uh, and what US is willing to uh, grant a sanction relief and what is not. Uh, I think if we get a major understanding on that, then I think we are very likely to have a JCPO agreement. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm just looking at the other question. Thank you so much for this answer. And uh, we have another question from uh, Lee to any speaker. And that is, what are the chances of reconciliation between Iran and the West and ending the Middle Eastern Cold War with Saudi Arabia? And would the new Iranian administration consider an end to the proxy wars in Yemen and Syria. So uh, who would like to pick up that question, anyone? Uh, any, anyone from the panelists can answer that question. Well, I think we have to, to, to make a, dis a distinction between the, the, the Iranian attitude towards the, the, the so-called West uh, especially the United States, which in, which in my view is not going to change. Again, because uh, as I said before, as, uh, and as uh, Dr. Pabu has said, this is not a governmental or presidential uh, decisions, but, 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 but uh, mainly a state uh, decisions to be decided by the Supreme Leader and the Supreme National Security Council. And when it comes to the Iran's attitude towards the United States, uh, not just, uh, not only there is no difference, but I, I personally believe that Trump's decision to leave the JCPOA actually increased the, uh, this uh, sense of, uh, of uh, Supreme Leader Khamenei that the United States should not be trusted. So uh, as Raisi said uh, himself, I will not, uh, I will not hold a phone talk with, uh, with uh, President Biden. Uh, with all due respect, it's not his decision. And uh, even if we wanted to do that, Khamenei would probably not give him the permission to do that. Uh, when it comes to the regional policy, uh, again, I, I think it's, it's, uh, the, the Iranian position is quite clear. Uh, it, it is willing to discuss regional issues with everyone, uh, but not with the, uh, the involvement of, 
uh, of the of the Western, especially not the United States uh, uh, participation. So Iran has been saying again and again, we are willing to discuss regional issues. We are, we are willing to discuss our interference and our involvement in, in Syria or in Iraq, but on two conditions. One is that uh, we will discuss that in addition to the other countries' uh, involvement in those countries. So if you want to discuss Iran's interference in Iraq, let's uh, discuss Saudi interference in Yemen, for example. And the second condition is that the United, mainly the United States should be out of this uh, issue. Uh, so I think that what we've seen in, uh, in, the, in recent months between Iran and Saudi Arabia uh, discussing uh, certain issues, mainly the, the Yemenite crisis uh, in, in Iraq, uh, will probably continue. Uh, but again, this is a decision to be made uh, mainly by the Supreme National Security Council. Thank you so much. And uh, before moving on to the second question, which has been in the written form, I would encourage our audience to uh, please raise your hand and ask it yourself. I think uh, maybe it can be better communicated. And uh, I have another question uh, for uh, doc Dr. Pargu from uh, Mahmoud uh, Moneshpuri. And that is, uh, Raisi is going to move Iran further uh, economic and political ties with China. Raisi is going to move Iran towards further economic and political ties with China. Will this move serve Iran's national security interests in the long run? A uh, very, very deep question, I would suggest. Uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Mahmoud, uh, that question is for you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I don't think, again, that uh, race's approach to China would be significantly different from Rouhani or, for that matter, probably other uh, reforms if they were able to become president because because it, relations with China is inevitable at the moment. They, you have to, if you, as an you know, as a country, as a government, you want to do you know business with the world right now. Your only way is China, and even if uh, U.S. Uh, sanctions are you know lifted, again China always have been there as a uh, global big global power. And increasingly uh, inserting, you know, influence in the Middle East. So Iran, as part of um, DRI, um, you know, currently Iran is not playing a significant role in DRI, basically because of uh, U.S. sanctions. So just imagine that if even these sanctions were not there, Iran would have been much more part of Chinese, say, BRI project. So it, it, it looks like currently Iran has no choice, even if sanctions, if sanctions are not removed, okay, the possibilities of cooperation, economic cooperation with China would be limited because of all those sanctions. If they are lifted, of course, it will be extended, but it's not about race. Anybody who comes at the moment in the current situation in Iran and probably even the reformists they, they will start, you know, and just don't forget that Chinese probably right now should be 45% or something of oil import comes from the Middle East. China looks very uh, strategically to Iran because Iran is uh, the only uh, oil exporter to China that is not um, under heavy influence of the West. So, so it's strategic, I guess, and uh, Ray C uh, probably is not that much different from others in that matter. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Mahmoud. And we have uh, uh, a gentleman raising his hand from the floor. 
Mr. Jasim Pudug, uh, please, if you could unmute yourself and ask your question. Thank you. Yeah, this is Jasim from Bahrain. Uh, greetings to all, maybe. Uh, my question is this, there is this thought that the IRGC would become in control of many things in, in Iran, you know, they're already in control of the parliament, then they could become through IEC in control of the president's office, and possibly even of the office of the supreme leader. Is this true or really exaggerated and, and said by Iran's enemies? That's one. The second one is that there's also this talk that Raisi could really become the next supreme leader, you know, given the fact that he was really popularly elected, that the current supreme leader came from the same area, that he was elected and then became president. Is this a true scenario or again, it's not true? Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Mr. Jasim. And uh, any of the panelists would like to take on that question? Please go ahead. Oh, okay. Dr. Sanam, please go ahead. <clears throat> Thank you. Hello, Dr. Jassim. Good to hear your voice. Um, I'm happy to take on uh, uh, and offer some of my thoughts on both of the questions. Um, I, the IRGC's role, I don't think, is exaggerated. The IRGC has been a very important institution that Iran's supreme leader has come to rely on um, as part of uh, his process of gaining greater legitimacy and institutionalizing um, and broadening the, ro uh, the role and responsibility of his office um, in the Iranian system. I, however, don't see the IRGC as the sole actor of influence and importance within the Iranian system. Um, Dr. Zimt referred to a paper I had written on the Iranian deep state. And I think that the system is much more reliant on a um, complex set of actors that are involved in the military, intelligence, and security um, all connected to the Supreme Leader. Uh, so uh, if you look at um, institutions of influence or individuals of influence, I could also point to, they are connected to uh, the intelligence office, um, the judiciary, the IRGC, um, also the parastatal um, economic foundations that are hugely important for patronage and um, to provide uh, financial assets and support to the state. So I think, um, taken together, they all play a very important role. Um, and they share um, a view that the Islamic Republic, um, as it exists, uh, must be protected. Uh, uh, they're working to prevent the transformation of the Islamic Republic. Um, so that's um, my view. Of course, there are others that see the IRGC as the most important actor. But interestingly, in this election, we didn't see uh, the great takeover of Iran by the IRGC. So, so perhaps we have to question th that assumption. Uh, I think the IRGC is a, a really instrumental part of the system, but I don't know if it has the capacity and capability to break the system and become an independent actor. Um, and secondly, on Raisi as a um, potential successor, I think he is indeed a successor, um, potentially. Uh, but um, the process, of course, is going to be very opaque. Um, Raisi also sits in the assembly of experts, the institution responsible for selecting the next Supreme Leader. Um, generally, I mean, we've only seen a transition once, but the successor comes from within the um, assembly of experts itself. Um, and that's why 
um, past um, past uh, in past elections, we've seen the candidate, um, uh, the um, the vetting of Hassan um, uh, Khomeini, uh, for example, uh, into that body because um, they want to remove him as a potential successor. I think that much depends on Raisi's legacy and how Raisi um, manages his. Um, tenure as president. Yes, he's ticked the box and he's following in Khamenei's footsteps. And I think that he is a mirror image of Khamenei. So that makes him a reliable actor. Um, but uh, much depends on uh, consensus that will be built um, over the next few years. There's also rumors of a constitutional reform process that could also emerge in the next few years. Um, so there are many unknowns uh, where we're really looking into a black box. And I think that there are, of course, other candidates that are on the short list uh, that um, we have to discuss and, and think about perhaps in the future as well. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Sanam. And Ibrahim Raisi's father-in-law is also in that council of experts. So there are two people in the family. So I think uh, very high likelihood of that. Now we have the, uh, the next question from one of our uh, own colleague at MEI, uh, Dr. Jonah Blank. Uh, if you could unmute yourself and ask a question, Jonah. Uh, Dr. Blank, uh, can you hear us? Uh, okay, yes, okay, uh, no let's see. My apologies. Um, okay, okay. Uh, my apologies. Uh, my question is about the possibility of Raisi becoming the supreme leader. My understanding is that he lacks the uh, theological expertise to become uh, the supreme leader, that it would be a very highly politicized uh, decision. And uh, I'm, as an anthropologist uh, of Islam, among other things, uh, I, I just was surprised that people were referring to this as a live possibility. But my expertise really is not in Ithna'ashri Shiism. Uh, perhaps one of the speakers could uh, discuss this issue. Uh, uh, sure. I mean, the question is open to everyone. Uh, I see uh, Dr. Mahmoud, you're raising uh, your hand and Dr. Razal. Okay, everyone, Please, starting with Dr. Mahmoud. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, first, uh, I, I don't think theological uh, theological relevance of race is that much important at the moment. You know, just compare it to Khamenei when he became um, a supreme leader. His uh, theological credentials were much less than current race. So, and right now, apparently many people are starting to, to, to call him with the title Ayatollah. And so it, it looks like it, it would be easy for, for them if they decide. And, um, and also consider this fact that this theological credentials uh, has, uh, you know, has lost its importance in the last four, few decades, you know. Khomeini, everybody knows, is not Khomeini. Khomeini has, uh, he was like a manifestation of a Shia Imam. You, he has so much charisma, but, but Khomeini was not there. Khomeini, many people don't look at him as, as too much, you know, religious uh, rather than a political. So it's, it's more about politics these days. And those are only, say, probably 
some some formalities and paperwork for uh, legal paperwork for them. And second issue is that uh, we, we really don't know if Raisi is being pro. I mean, Raisi becoming president paves the the way for him to become the supreme leader, or just absolutely uh, opposite because. Some people uh, have this, you know, uh, theory that probably some some sections of power are trying to bring Raisi to the spotlight so that he engages in the everyday running of country. And you know, when you are president, then problems start. You have you can't you know solve problems. You can't solve the immediate problems of economy and many things. And then discontent and you know this protest from people starts. People start you know. Uh, criticizing and, and you lose that uh, charisma that leadership needs. So it's it's a theory that probably they are just want to burn him, like they burnt Sadiq uh, Larijani, they burnt many other, you know, prominent, uh, say, uh, candidates for the leadership. Okay, uh, Dr. Raz, and then uh, maybe Dr. Uh, Professor Dora. Dr. Raz, please. Uh, yeah, well, just, uh, I totally agree with what uh, Dr. Parbu said, and just to, to, to remind our audience that uh, following uh, Khomeini's death in 1989, uh, they actually had to, to uh, they actually had to, uh, to, to change the Iran's constitution and to separate between the so-called Marjayat and the so-called Velayat in order to uh, to enable someone like Khamenei, who is not a Marjayat Aklid, to become the next Supreme Leader of Iran. So that's, uh, of course, re relevant to, to Ebrahim Raisi as well. And uh, a short remark concerning the IRGC, the IRGC uh, and it continues to what uh, Sanana said, uh, I, I think we should refrain from, uh, from re uh, referring to the IRGC as a monolithic organization. Uh, there are different uh, approaches within the IRGC, and, and when, when you remember perhaps that uh, one of the IRGC uh, ex-functionaries, uh, Saeed Mohammad, decided to run in the president's uh, in, the, in, the, in the recent pres uh, elections, uh, it actually caused some uh, uh, some bad reactions from some of uh, of his fellow of his fellow IRGC members. So I, I, I think that we should, uh, we should really uh, remember that there are different interests, different uh, uh, approaches within the IRGC. So we should not uh, uh, consider the IRGC as a monolithic uh, organization. Okay, yeah, uh, I, yeah please, uh, please go ahead. Yes, to, to that briefly. There was also a good deal of the speculation that uh, soon to be former president Rouhani was being groomed perhaps as the next supreme leader. And we know what happened to, to him in two terms in the office, that, that you know, uh, politicking and as American political scientists call it sausage making, uh, which is everyday politicking, does not necessarily help you to develop a name or a reputation, which is unscarred by politics uh, that would position you well for that office of the supreme leader that's number one the second thing that is important to note is that the iranian politics has proven to be tremendously fluid full of uh, in some ways contradiction and uh, full of uh, spontaneity that all the post-colonial states can be subverted by mass action and that's uh, perhaps more true about iran than than uh, some of the other examples that we can think of. 
And the reason uh, I, I say this is that uh, we often think that the, the office of Supreme Leader is omnipresent and omnipotent and calls all the shots and everybody follows in line. That's not necessarily the case. Um, his office has one voice, very significant and powerful voice, but nevertheless one voice. There are other forces, other groups. This is the system that tolerated the ascendance of Khatami to presidency. And all the civil society activities that we saw flourishing under Khatami. That's what I mean. So it's not a monolithic uh, political entity that we can simply through some conventional wisdom say that, okay, I agree with the assessment that we cannot even put Raisi in a box that because he comes from the hardline uh, faction, he's gonna act like this or that or that. No, great deal of what would motivate his behavior or set his agenda has to do with a very vibrant Iranian society that came in post-revolutionary period out of a mass movement and a revolution that involved participation of large number of people that legitimizes the still at least controlled, subverted, engineered, but still sees it necessary to legitimize its existence through elections. And we must take note of that. I think that's what sets Iran apart from other authoritarian states. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Professor Dorat. Uh, Dr. Sanam, would you like to join in? Uh... Thank you, Dr. Shaja. I think my colleagues have really covered the topic um, fully, so I, I, I'm not going to venture in on this one. Okay, thank great. Thank you so much. And uh, my apologies to the audience because I am not able to give them a follow-up chance because we have so many uh, questions here. And uh, in fact, there are uh, three questions for I'm just clubbing them together for uh, Dr. Uh, Raz. Uh, I'll just read them. Uh, Israel always sees Iran as the main threat in the region. Uh, how will Iranian government respond to Israel's maneuvering of diplomatic closeness with the Arab countries? That is question number one. Uh, then question number two, the first is from Santo Warman. Uh, the second question from Mahmoud Monshipuri is for Dr. Raz. Uh, Iran has been the major beneficiary of political instability on the region, in the region. It's a loaded question. Iran thrives on crisis in the region. Uh, and then, uh, I mean, uh, why should we assume that Iran faces difficult challenges? Because there are so many conflicts in the region already. That is second. The third question from Mehdi, again for Dr. Raz. Does Israel support regime change in Iran? That would be my question also. <laughs> What is Israel's policy towards region change in Iran? Uh, Dr. Raz, if you could uh, answer this question. Uh, yeah, well, well, I'll try to, to address them very brief, briefly. Uh, look, I, I think that it's, it's natural to, to, to assess that Iran is not pleased with the rapprochement between uh, Israel and some of the, the Arab states in, in the Gulf. Um, I think the main concern uh, in Iran is the possibility that this cooperation, uh, which is not new, by the way, but it's now more public, between Israel and the Gulf states might evolve into a more, I would say, uh, military, perhaps security or intelligence Israeli presence in the Persian Gulf, which is, of course, a main concern. Um, I, I, I'm not sure that we should uh, overestimate uh, this new 
anti-Iranian Israeli Arab coalition because uh, at the end of the day uh, we all know that Saudi Arabia and the UAE uh, and other con uh, other countries in the region uh, have their own interests and I think there is also a, a slight difference between the way Israel has been uh, uh, concerning uh, concerning Iran and the attitude of our of some of our uh, new friends in the Gulf towards Iran for example our Israel Israel main concerns uh, is uh, the nuclearization of Iran, while other countries in the region uh, um, put more focus on the on the missiles, for example, and on Iran's regional uh, uh, involvement in, in those states. So I think, yes, there is potential for uh, concern for Iran, but I'm not sure that Iran considers this uh, cooperation between Israel and the Gulf state as a zero-sum game. Uh, they continue to do uh, business, for example, with the UAE, despite the fact that the UAE and Israel uh, have uh, now uh, diplomatic ties. Uh, I'm not sure I remember the second question, uh, but the, the third question uh, was, uh, look, I don't remember that Israeli politicians, including Prime Minister Netanyahu, has uh, publicly supported the idea of a regime change. But I think it's very obvious that uh, Israel or the official Israelis concern, consider uh, a regime change in Iran as perhaps the only real solution to the main threats uh, coming from Iran. Um, the problem is that regime change uh, is not uh, to be carried out by Israel. I mean, with all due respect to, to the abilities and capabilities of the Mossad, uh, but uh, we, 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 we hardly can uh, carry out regime change in Gaza. So uh, uh, when it comes to Iran, it's, it's even more, more complicated. So I think the, the main concern in, in, in Israel is that when you look at those uh, two uh, timelines, one is the nuclearization of Iran, and the second one is the prospects for regime change, uh, the main concern in Israel is that Iran will become a nuclear threshold state before the regime changes uh, in, in, in Iran. Uh, thank sorry, you so I, much. I don't remember the second question. No problem. I'll remind you of that because that is actually a very uh, pertinent question. And of course, linked to what you have said, uh, is that uh, you have alluded to uh, the conflicts that are being faced by Iran as something that is sort of problem. Okay. The questionnaire asks that Iran actually thrives on the conflict. In fact, that is reminded uh, me the the other discussion by uh, Kenneth Katzman, you know, uh, Dr. Sanam Vakil will remember that if these conflicts are removed, then the Iranian yeah, yeah. problem would be solved. Okay. So yeah, I, I, could, I, totally agree, I totally agree that uh, Iran flourishes more uh, in times of crisis in other countries. That's that's why I mentioned the stabilization in Iraq and Syria is one of the one of the reasons. For the uh, for the growing uh, problems Iran had, but we have to remember that in addition to uh, to chaos in the Middle East, which might give Iran more opportunities to increase its uh, uh, its uh, involvement, as I said, there are other issues. For example, the existence of of more than one player in the region which competes with Iran. Uh, Israeli efforts, Russian uh, competition with Iran, and the growing opposition within the Arab world, uh, mainly among public opinion in our, our world against Iran, uh, the king of Soleimani, and all the other problems, which uh, make it more difficult to Iran to increase its influence, even though there are still opportunities to use. 
And I agree, Iran has been very successful in turning threats into opportunities, but still, we should not remember that uh, as, as the civil war in Iraq, in Iraq has ended and the, the, there is more stability in Syria, uh, there are less prospects for Iran to flourish, to entrench itself, and there are other problems as well, as I mentioned before. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Ali. It was a difficult one. And uh, before moving on to the other question that I have, I'm really a little tempted to uh, involve uh, Dr. Mahmoud because he has written a book and he is having this fresh memory. Because uh, during the last succession, there was a constitutional change. And looking at the constitutional aspect of it, do you foresee any more constitutional change during the next succession? Uh, if you could, that's my question. Yeah. It's a, it's a difficult question and really difficult to predict because uh, how many a few years ago, pro probably even eight years ago or something, I, I don't remember exactly the date, he alluded to the possibility that why not a parliamentary system? Why should we insist on presidential system? So I think, uh, you know, this discussion and debate didn't followed up by didn't follow up by how many or many conservatives, and apparently it was died out, dried out, you know, back then. But what happened is that uh, instead of changing the constitution, it looks like the regime tries to make this balance between you know um, the risk of election and the rewards of election. Uh, with, with the addressing, with doing three things. First of all, uh, in the last uh, 12, 10, 12 years, they have been very, very restrictive about the candidates. So you have this very restrictive policy and it's always increasing. So the possibility that you really, uh, you know, game changer candidates and wild risk or wild cards, you know, they can come into the elections and do some fundamental change basically is ruled out. Second is that they have been, uh, they have been uh, creating many parallel organizations to parallel the president and its you know, um, power. So that uh, even if you have uh, somebody like Rouhani, then his power compared to 20 years ago is much, much less. So you have all these, you know, uh, boniards or um, economic funds, you have all these, you know, cultural institutes, you have all these media institutes, you know, 20 years ago, you had one uh, news agency was under control of the government. But right now you have probably uh, 10 or more news agencies working inside in the government and uh, I mean in the country and probably more than 80% of them, the more, most successful of them are not part of the Rouhani's government or later races. So you have all these parallel institutions, even in higher education sector, you have all these influences coming from IRC. So this is another one. So it, it, it looks like there is not uh, this urgency or a need to change the constitution with these you know, reforms, which has been taking, you know, shaking with the, within the last um, say two decades. And also in foreign policy, Apart from all those structural issues, um, you know, Ayatollah Khamenei's uh, say influence in the government has been increasing, and uh, right now some uh, some countries in the region are directly uh, managed by Ayatollah Khamenei's representatives in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, and and it's kind of you know, uh, non-written but known to everybody in the administration that okay this. For example, 
the Yemen's profile, Iraq's profile, say Afghanistan's profile, Venezuela's profile is being managed by Tullah Khamenei. This is not somebody else's, you know, prerogative to enter. So I don't think that uh, we need any kind of, you know, constitutional change. So in, in other terms, uh, we are entering into a kind of smart electoral, uh, electoral authoritarianism, you know, before it was, it was difficult to manage, but uh, right now, I think the regime really is becoming very smart to how to manage all these, you know, controversies uh, instead of changing the very uh, text of the law. I guess, yeah. Yeah, regime, regime would be very happy. You have called them smart. So thank you so much for your answer. And uh, Professor Adhuraj, you had promised me that you will touch upon, uh, upon Iran uh, China relation because uh, you see uh, Ali Larijani was a candidate, a very potential candidate. Uh, uh, he was uh, disqualified and he is the person who has been deputed by uh, Ayatollah Khamenei to be the point man for this particular relationship. So how does his, his disqualification impact, because that is also linked to the election, the impact Iran-China relationship. If you could answer that, you promise. Surely, I don't think it'll, it'll be crucial. As I mentioned, uh, there is a good deal of consensus across the factional divide in Iran that relation with China is necessary, but essential for regime survival. And also the whole unpredictability of political power and transitional political power in the United States, which was the lesson that Iranian government drew from Trump phenomenon and all the policies that ensued under Trump makes us believe that the US cannot be relied upon uh, as any possible future economic partner, et cetera. In fact, the Iranian negotiators early on uh, coined the idea of $16 billion of Boeing contract that during the Obama administration negotiation was on the table that that might be uh, uh, resurrected but the Biden administration did not show any interest in doing that. Uh, so all of this, I think, makes them to conclude that relation with China is essential, but also see China as an emerging economic power, which has very little history of conflict. And one of the few countries that played an essential role in reconstruction of Iran after war uh, against Saddam, and is highly embedded, deeply embedded in Iranian infrastructure, uh, from broadband to building Iranian subways, roads, dams, fisheries, you name it. Uh, they have a hand in it. Just to give you an example, in 2019, during the sanctions, 48% of Iranian exports went to China, 27.5% of Iranian imports came from China. So China is indispensable for Iran's economic survival. And as a partner that they see, especially they're putting their fortune in fortune uh, in what they see to be a major uh, success of Belt and Road Initiative that China is undertaking. And, and uh, there is a journalist uh, in uh, New York Times that in 2017 wrote an article, the title of the article was for China's global ambition, Iran is at the center of everything. And, and that of course refers to Iran's political geography 
as a gateway to Central Asia, largest coast on Persian Gulf, Caspian Sea, and true Turkey, a gateway to Europe. Uh, and that makes, but also unlike its Arab neighbors, a country with 85 million possible consumers, a country which has a long history of relation with China and is cohesive as an entity, is a grand civilization as China is, and all of those, and also both countries have suffered through era of colonialism and what they call in China humiliation. That's the point of psychological identification that makes the two sides to gravitate to each other and China's policies of non-intervention, respect for sovereignty and all that is music to the ears of Iranian leaders. Thank you so much, uh, Professor uh, Doraj. And uh, I, I had kept this question uh, for the end because it is uh, sharing the pain of uh, the Iranian people. And it's a bit sad, but I'll just read it. Uh, do you perceive, uh, the question is from Enoch Ang, uh, do you perceive more young people and professionals in Iran considering immigration in view of the uncertainties and lack of opportunities faced if the current sanctions continue, uh, do you anticipate a potential faster Iranian brain drain to the outside world? And I think uh, uh, this may be difficult to answer, but if you sum up, uh, you could volunteer answering this question. Sure, Sanam, please. I'll just yeah, quickly. Um, I mean, you know, really one of the tragedies is that Iran's uh, largest export is not its energy resources, but it's its uh, human capital. Um, and that's something we can say has been a consistent feature um, uh, since uh, 1979. There have been waves, um, uh, larger waves, and I think most recently that larger wave came after the 2009 Green Movement, but since the protests in 2017 and 2019, there were also increased movements of people, uh, young people in particular, leaving Iran. I would expect that if the Raisi government continues um, uh, to uh, manage uh, the system through co coercive means and not um, uh, invest in uh, the economy, uh, creating uh, some sort of hope or future for young people, that brain drain is going to continue. The challenge, of course, is that doors, um, immigra immigration doors are closing globally. So where Iranians are going to go, um, it, you know, it will be continually more difficult, but you can see the plight um, of Iranians willing to cross the English Channel, open seas, um, going uh, east as well as west uh, to get out of Iran. And, and you know, what you see in the diaspora is a highly educated, highly motivated uh, population um, that unfortunately isn't um, investing in their home country, isn't welcome in their home country, despite what President Raisi has uh, recently announced in his uh, first pre press conference. Um, so so, you know, in short, it, it is a very uh, sort of sad story. But what the Islamic Republic fails to understand is by creating, um, helping to create a bolder um, 
uh, Iranian diaspora, what it also um, succeeds in doing is uh, uh, increasing Iranian activism in the diaspora. And that is a sense of, that is a sore point for the Islamic Republic back home. And it sort of aggravates the Islamic Republic um, uh, seriously. So I think it has to consider whether uh, forcing people out is a worthwhile strategy. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Sanam, for painting this picture, which is probably very correct. And uh, let us leave uh, that as a parting thought from uh, us all. And uh, since we have uh, reached the end of this uh, webinar, very successfully, uh, uh, you know, uh, conducted by this panel uh, uh, of speakers, and uh, uh, the uh, very pertinent questions asked by asked by uh, the audience. And uh, I would like to just thank thank my organization, Middle East Institute, National University of Singapore for organizing this event. And uh, the event team uh, led by uh, Sharon uh, for making it happen, uh, taking care of all the details. And thank you so much uh, to all the panelists for uh, your uh, very uh, energetic participation. I hope that we meet uh, sooner in future, maybe in person, and we will uh, continue to collaborate in various uh, different formats academically. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much to the audience also. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to meet everyone. Bye-bye. Same here. Same thank here. You. Thank you. Thank you.